0: Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com
1: Welcome back to Cleantech Talks. This is the second episode of Discussion with the co-founders of Buzz Solutions, Caitlin Albertoli and Vic Chaudry. Buzz Solutions analyzes terabytes of high-resolution images of power lines and towers captured by drones and helicopters for their utility clients, rapidly identifying failed or failing components and having a lot of other value propositions as well. And there's a couple of things that occur to me there. One is your, you know, the asset tracking implies that your machine learning stuff has to identify probably 50 or 70 variants of insulators and be able to identify them and then start to categorize them. That's a value proposition in and of itself because then you can start to figure out how many of these components there are they there. But then you actually have to also have to recognize when they're damaged or cracked. So there's some sophistication there. There are two things that, you know, related to this that, that occurred to me. One is lots and lots of data, lots and lots of high resolution images. I mean, you know, I, I think I put this into the thing. But how do you get the data? I assume, I don't know. I mean, are you expect? Do your clients upload it into a SaaS site? Uh, do you you know get them to ship SD cards back to you for your manipulation? How does the data move around? Because there can be a lot of data.
2: Yeah. So data management is definitely a really critical aspect, and we're dealing with critical infrastructure data, so we have to be really careful. Uh, when we're working with utilities, data management, data transmission, data storage, those those aspects. And as as you know, with, with more continuous monitoring of the grid, which is uh, which is supposed to happen, is mandated to happen, there will be more increase in data, not only just images but you know other kinds of data, whether it's hyperspectral, thermal data, even lidar data set, which is taking you know this world from images two d world of images to three d world of lidar. So so we, we will be getting a lot more data. Uh, the critical piece of this is usually how we, uh, how we supply our solution to utilities is in different options so that they, that can match with their workflow. So the first one is uh, we'll integrate, uh, they, they store all the data on their side. We integrate an API, we expose an API to them, a secure API that can be used to uh, you know, bring that data into our storage and then process it and then send it back. So they, warehouse all the data. They have the ground truth. They catalog all the data and we just run processing on that, on that uh, data for them and then deliver the results back to them. The second uh, option is they don't have a warehousing solution. They don't have a storage solution. So we give access to our storage to them, which is again, secure and encrypted. We give that cloud access to them and then they just upload the data on a, on a regular basis over there uh, whenever they com- uh, complete an inspection site or inspection location. And then they just manage or we manage the data for them through our platform. As, as you were saying, we have a platform as a service for utilities, which does data management, project collaboration, uh, AI processing, and then analysis, and then a result export to their legacy systems. So those are the two options we give them. Again, in both the options, the data remains secure, secure access, multi- uh, multi-factor authenticated, encryption, both at rest and transmission, which is why, you know, security is is a prime concern for us as well.
1: Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it's the volume of data. I mean, people don't think about transmission costs, but if you're doing lots and lots and lots and lots of high resolution images, sometimes the best thing to do is have a truck going down the highway at 55 miles an hour. But in this case, you're, you are using electronic transit of stuff and just accepting the burden of, of those things. It's just the, the volume works out sufficiently well, I, I assume. The second question, you know, I'm just thinking about the reinforcement learning process um, and some of the implications of that. Because, you know, you, in order for this to work, you have to be able to look at an ins, a picture of an insulator, be able to say that's an insulator, and then see these degradation problems or cracks or flaking or whatever, and identify those and ins- the linemen and experts in those things are the people who are doing that who is actually training the solution is it your clients people or did you start with a is there a significant industry data set that you were able to use as a a foundational starting training set Uh, tell us about that piece
2: yeah sure so we train our models we have trained our models for the past two years on you know thousands of images spanning across geographies and timelines for utilities so we provide baseline models to utilities which you know have uh, very high accuracy across you know detection for failure modes or assets uh, or healthy assets so we do uh, training we do continuous retraining of the models which we call a process called active learning and without divulging too many uh, you know processes that we follow so there is a whole process that we follow when we're training the models and continuously reinforcing the models to become better and much more personalized for customers But we also, you know, enable a process called human in the loop for our customers, which is, you know, the AI will perform its analysis, will give the results. And then, you know, the the users of our platform, they can visualize those results and see how the AI performed and kind of provide that feedback. So that's the human in the loop bringing, you know, supervision of subject matter experts into the picture to guide the AI towards, you know, perfection. So that's our, you know, full workflow of active learning. Let's say an insulator was detected and it was not damaged. It was detected damaged by the AI. The user can go in and change that label on our platform, and that feedback gets stored on our backend. And we continuously retrain the model, and that's where the reinforcement learning of uh, aspect of the model comes in. Where, you know, when the model is wrong, it is uh, it is penalized with certain you know weights and biases as uh, you know as per reinforcement learning, and then when it's it's right, it's it's rewarded. So that's how you know the model becomes much more stronger, robust, but more importantly, personalized for utilities, that utilities data. And that holds value because again, utilities data varies from you know, location to location. And even in timelines, we want these models to become more personalized towards each utility customer as, as we're working with them.
1: Oh, it's an interesting question because then how do you bring the learnings from utilities across to other utilities and improve your baseline model?
2: Yeah, so we, as, as you said, as uh, we were describing, we have a baseline model, which we call the trunk model. And then we have branches coming out of that trunk model, which represents, uh, you know, models that are more personalized towards that specific utility. So in terms of training, the branch models are trained more frequently on specific utility data. And then the trunk model is trained at a longer span than the branch models. So eventually both the models become uh, you know, more reinforced, more robust and, and uh, accurate in their predictions. But the value is where the branch models are because those branch models are personalized. So overall the trunk model keeps on increasing in its baseline and then the branch models keep on increasing in their personalization for that user data.
1: Oh, interesting. There's a really interesting human aspect to this that I'd like to talk about a little bit because I'm sure you've ended up having these conversations with your customers. Um, but I think that you guys are actually in a sweet spot. for us. The problem is that when we, you know, in historical efforts, as we used machine learning um, or automation, and we expected human experts to train the computers that were going to replace them, the humans would say, "Well, the heck with that! Why would I teach the machine to put me out of a job? You know, what's in it, what's in it for me?" I think that if I'm if I'm parsing the, the situation correctly, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong. This is instead of having to hire ten times as many people, the people they already have get force leverage without additional people or with fewer additional people, and so they they I would posit that there would be less resistance to that expert participation in training the models from your clients than in many other places I've seen. Is is that what you know? You guys have been experiencing or seeing, or has this even come up?
2: Yeah, so it definitely comes up all the time and you see analogies in the healthcare sector as well where, you know, uh, surgeons uh, and doctors are kind of, you know, with more ML computer vision technologies coming in to the healthcare sector, they are guiding it. And and that's definitely, uh, you know, what, what we try to explain is a lot of people get scared about these models and algorithms that are automating a lot of jobs, but it's uh, what we try to explain is not to look at, it as an enemy but as another tool in in your you know uh, toolbox uh, if you look at it so it, it's it's a golden tool it helps you do a lot but it, at the end of the day it's still a tool that will help you accomplish your goal or you know business objective in a much more efficient and optimized manner so even when you are you know training the models and that that process in itself is very beneficial because again human expertise and supervision is required to train uh, any algorithm, AI algorithm or model, because considered as you, you know how you train a child to be as uh, good at a certain task, it's it's similar to that. Uh, it grows and learns, and you know follows the crawl, walk, and learn approach. So it's really relevant. But as as you're saying, as you're saying that you know that supervision process gets uh, a lot more. It it gets reduced as as the model becomes much more uh, you know advanced and robust and and personalized in its uh, you know in its goals and objectives. And what we see in the utility sector is this supervision from line inspectors or field technicians that are that are subject matter experts. That once they have done this, they they are better suited for you know roles in other areas where you know they, they should be doing maintenance or they should be uh, doing uh, grid resiliency operations, those kind of things. Because they're not uh, you know they're not uh, machine learning experts. They're not data scientists. They help this mundane task become, become much more optimized with with the model feedback that they provide. But at the end of the day, they are the ones that that are taking actions in the field. They are the ones that are, uh, you know, impacting the grid and making repairs or you know making the grid more efficient. The models or the algorithms are the ones that are only you know providing them direction and act as a tool. Okay, where to look and where to repair. At the end of the day, the actions are still need to be, they still need to be performed by humans at this current stage. I cannot talk about, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, because there is a lot of innovation happening in robotics as well. And as models improve, hardware improves as well. So I'm, I'm just talking about the current stage where we are at.
1: And that's... That's actually even a better case because, you know, I, I had a buddy who was a linesman in Saskatchewan, um, you know, he'd be up lines fixing stuff in minus 40 howling blizzards and crap like that. And the stories he told me, you know, chilled me, I will just say. and But these people self-select to be linesmen and mechanical repair people. So I can see their job satisfaction increasing because they're not spending hours a day looking at pictures. To find the faults, they spend some time training, but they spend a lot more time in the field actually doing the job they consider to be the productive work. Is that a, an expression that you've heard back from your clients?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a really key uh, area where we see the lineman actually want to be out in the field as opposed to sitting behind a computer. And and I also want to circle back to the to the a point we talked about earlier. Is you know this whole process of data collection at this scale is really a a new and scaling process that we're seeing right now so this hasn't been the historical practice where there have been these you know huge catalogs of data that have just been that have been collected on an annual basis this is really a huge uptick that we're seeing on an annual basis where utilities are doubling or tripling the amount of images that they're capturing per year Uh, and as such it's causing this huge now Lag in processing time, or this huge, just I guess you would say, workflow of just analyzing a lot of this data, which is where Lyman are right now spending. Lyman field technicians, inspectors are spending a lot of their time, but really they would rather be out in the fields. And that's been a common, you know, point that we've received is we're helping. We're acting as a tool to help these individuals analyze and make sense of this information, so that they can then review the data a lot faster and make faster decisions and more informed decisions, and they can take action as opposed to just sitting there and, and clicking through through images. And one of our one of our customers has actually told us that you know prior to using our solution, they had about 200 linemen and engineers that were spending eight to nine hours a day just analyzing data. And that was their job eight to nine hours a day, but, but really those people could have been served so much better actually taking action. And when you're seeing that some utilities have a backlog of unanswered maintenance requests of hundreds or thousands of unanswered maintenance requests at the end of the year, this is where a solution like ours really sees true value is because we're helping those individuals that could be out there in the fields, solving some of these highest risk uh, faults and failures, we could be helping get them there faster
2: yeah i think uh, PG&E had 3500 unanswered maintenance requests in 2018 before uh, you know the paradise fire so um, yeah but what we like to explain to uh, these linemen and inspectors who get a uh, little you know anxious about uh, this kind of software and tool is is just like you know they have hardware tools to repair the lines consider this as a tool in their toolbox which is software based so now they know where to go what to look at and what to do basically
1: I'm seeing for the, your, your clients, I mean, there's multiple value propositions for what you're bringing. A, there's fundamental grid resilience, and you know that's one thing. Two, there's a significantly reduced labor cost through automation from what they could spend instead. You're not um, reducing their labor costs because they're maintaining their workforce, but they don't have to hire 10 times as many people to do, the, to do you know, this analysis piece. Three, there's the speed of identification. But four, I, I had not realized this is an actually a really interesting counterexample of a more satisfied workforce because it sounds like employee satisfaction would go up in utilities among linesmen and the people who actually, you know, as I said, self-selected be in the field. Very interesting counterexample to some of the types of things. Um, you guys make workers happier. Yeah.
0: That's yeah, that's correct. And you know, we, we have seen that initially when when linemen or field technicians are learning about our solution or originally testing out our solution, there is definitely some hesitancy, but it's been really interesting to see as we've conducted surveys at the end of the first week, at the end of the first month, and then a few months down the road, how the satisfaction has dramatically increased and how they've realized how much time is actually being saved and how much easier their jobs have become from what was, you know, previously a lot more of their medial tasks. So, i mean that's that's great validation for for our solution and, and but not just our solution really i think for a lot of ai solutions that are Entering more antiquated industries is there are really great values that are that are coming from these solutions as they're automating just more mundane tasks, not necessarily replacing the human job as a whole, but really helping repurpose that human job to being something that that is more suited for human capabilities because humans are so much more capable of, of using reason and taking actionable, taking actions and actually, you know, creating solutions for a lot of these problems that AI is picking up and identifying you know, humans are not best for just sitting behind a screen and clicking through clicking through thousands or hundreds of thousands of images.
2: And Mike, I'm pretty sure you you're from the AI, ML, you know, area. You hear this all the time, you know, when industrialization happened or uh, electricity was discovered, it, the, the, a lot of jobs were, you know, new jobs came up, a lot of jobs were lost, but those were repurposed as new jobs and similar kind of, uh, you know, thing or disruption is happening ever since, you know, 2005 when AI ML started becoming a scalable uh, approach in industries. So we see it being a tool to drive that repurposement of jobs and and take away mundane tasks that no one wants to do.
1: Yeah. And the the interesting thing is there that the linemen are not replaced. They're just vastly more productive.
0: That's
2: correct. Correct. That is
0: correct.
1: And they're vastly more productive and that's part of job satisfaction. You, you like to end the day feeling like you got something done. Yes. So um, how do you guys feed this back to, you know, new clients, their staff at the beginning of the process because to your point, you know, I I'd, I'd see some video testimonials from some, you know, previous lineman customers saying, "Oh, my job is so much better. I get to be out in the truck. I get to be fixing things. You know, I can go from point to point to point in a much more efficient way. I get a lot more done and you know, and I don't have to sit looking at pictures. I mean, I, you just, some, do you have videos like that from clients that you get to show to people?
2: Yeah, we have testimonials from, uh, you know, as, as Caitlin was describing, one of our recent customers, uh, they, they started off the project a little anxious about this tool and the software and the AI portion of it. And then over time, when we, you know, did the survey at the end of the, you know, three month project. They had positive reviews and testimonials for us. It you know it just made their job easier, and they were they they were able to see much more information from three sixty degree around their infrastructure as compared to what they were doing previously, which was going out in the field with binoculars and walking along the line and uh, you know taking notes and then coming back and comparing those notes, which they you know didn't want to do. Now it was mainly on you know just using the tool and then knowing where to go, what to do, and how to do it. Uh, well, how to do it is, is they know, but knowing where to go and what to look at, that was a great direction for them. Because our system also feeds back all these results to uh, you know utilities work order system. So work orders uh, work orders could be created, get assigned to priority areas so that key personnel can go and, and uh, you know repair, replace or maintain the infrastructure.
1: Yeah one thing that just struck me the way you were describing that it, it's the images you've got and the toolkits we have now um, could be used with photogrammetry to stitch together three-dimensional digital twins of sufficient resolution to fly around, you know, so that people know exactly where the fa- fa- faulty component is before they start climbing.
2: Yes, um, that's correct.
1: Have, have you guys explored some of the creation of digital twins of lines with your clients?
2: Yeah, so we uh, we do cluster all these you know images, and we are providing. Uh, a kind of a digital twin approach where we are mapping the line for our customers and then clustering all the image data that is captured along those lines and any kind of poles or towers or any, any kind of structures on those lines, we're clustering the images back to them. And this gives them like a 360 view. So we are looking at images captured from different angles by the drones from the top, from the you know, various angles on the side. And now you're seeing like a 360 view of a pole on a line. And that applies to, you know, thousands of poles that we have mapped, which comes back to our asset tracking capability or mapping capability as well, besides the AI portion, AI processing portion. So we do provide that capability to them. Another area that we are moving towards is taking this, uh, you know, uh, from the image 2D world of the images to now 3D world of LiDAR. So now LiDAR sensors have become much more cheaper and way less and smaller. And they are now being utilized on drones by a lot of drone inspection companies and even utilities when they're doing flying operations around infrastructure. So they're capturing a lot of LiDAR data. And what we're trying to do is, uh, you know, uh, extract that data, process that data, map a line in a 3D world, in a 3D mapping scenario and then do AI processing on top of it. So that's another genesis of our product or another line of our product that we're working on.
1: Yeah. I I spent a, fair amount of time in the digital twin space because I've got a weird background. And one of my buddies was CEO of um, Geosim Cities. They used LIDAR to do high, you know five centimeter scale mapping of urban areas and major infrastructural things like airports. So the, the Hong Kong airport did a digital twin of the Hong Kong airport at five centimeter scale resolution. And the, the problem there is just the sheer volume of data and the amount of processing power in the pipeline to get a digital twin out of that versus a good enough photogrammetry mock-up. It's it's a a really interesting challenge to manage the data and to get the right level of resolution. Too many digital twins are far too granular for the value propositions you're trying to achieve. Interesting. It's an interesting case. And LIDAR, I I love LIDAR. Uh, Material I've published on LIDAR has actually ended up in a conference in Korea, of all places. (laughs) I know. Very Um, cool. But and you know I, I love lidar, especially you know it's heavily used in the wind industry for wind mapping. You know some really cool stuff you can do there. Now gliders are getting um, lidar because gliders can see thermals.
2: Yeah. You
1: know which we can't. And so mm-hmm. when I was a paraglider, you know we had these. I was like that because I paraglided the Southern Cliffs of Valley once or twice. Peak experience, very cool. But paragliders and gliders, soaring pilots love thermals but we can't see them (laughs) so Uh so now the the people are actually starting to use lidar and gliding technologies separate conversation though so what i want to get to like there's kind of two more topics and then we'll close up the the first one is you know i know about you guys because you know you did something successful with newfoundland which is interesting. For those who don't know where Newfoundland is, you know, go to North America, go up from the United States, go all the way to the right, go up a little bit more. There's this big island off the coast of Canada and it's, you know, and there's a big chunk of the mainland called Labrador and Newfoundland, Labrador is a province of Canada. And it's a rocky, remote place with a bunch of fishing villages and a, you know, a small city. How did you end up working with Newfoundland?
0: Yeah. So we became connected with Newfoundland Power. We've been working with them now uh, for over a year, actually. Uh, But we, this past summer and fall, ran a project with Newfoundland Power and their inspection teams there um, in collaboration with EPRI, which EPRI is the Electric Power Research Institute. We were a part of EPRI's Incubate Energy Labs program, which is a program that takes innovative uh, startups or technologies or solutions um, in various spaces in the power sector, and uh, you run a quarter-long project with a utility. And so we worked with with Newfoundland Power and EPRI for that project to deploy Our solution, our our AI processing and our full software platform at scale for their teams. But we were originally connected with the team at Newfoundland through a drone service provider. The drone service provider's name is Ultimax Technologies, and they are actually based in Newfoundland. And they conduct inspections across a variety of industries. But one of the main industries that they focus on is the power inspection market. And so their job is uh, contracting with many Uh, different companies, one of them being power utilities to conduct inspections of their transmission and distribution infrastructure uh, using drones. And so uh, they were looking for a way to help automate their process of analyzing the data. And so we originally were connected with Ultimax Technologies back in early, end of 2020 and early 2021. And uh, they said, you know, we have this use case for going out and collecting a lot of data with both transmission and distribution infrastructure, but we're looking for a way to analyze a lot of this data because we're doing it all manually right now. And we would love to uh, test out your AI solution. And so uh, we ended up running a test with them and ended up working in collaboration with Newfoundland power for a small pilot project back uh, in the early part of, of last year. And they were satisfied with the results. And so we then move forward into a much larger engagement with both Ultimax and with, with newfoundland power and prior to that we'd done a little bit of work in canada but we're predominantly focusing on the u.s but newfoundland was definitely the the furthest most north place that we've been been working in and one of the the most remote places but you know they definitely have some very beautiful landscape there and some of the imagery that we were working with of their of their infrastructure was definitely against very serene backdrops of of the countryside there which was really cool
1: I'll, I'll provide a bit of a gloss on this for some people. That people, you know, some people are going with saying, "Well, a bunch of fishing villages in a small city. Why big power infrastructure?" Well, Newfoundland, Labrador, especially on Labrador on the mainland, has this massive hydro potential, and they're building a series of dams on Muskrat Falls, and they're building high voltage direct current transmission down and shipping electricity down into the United States market you know, so this is actually a significant economic portion of Newfoundland Labrador's space. So, you know, you might think of them as just this remote place, but the secondary part of it, as I said, it's really craggy country, you know, so drones and being able to, you know, just, just getting to the power lines and walking along them there, this is not trivial stuff. It's just really remote. It's really, you know, it's just fascinating, fascinatingly beautiful space. I'm sure you've loved the imagery, but, you know, power infrastructure in Newfoundland is a lot bigger than most people might think. So.
0: Yeah, and interestingly, one one point I would add there is a joke that you know as has been often said is in Newfoundland there's about one pole that, per person pretty much that if everyone that lived in Newfoundland or in Labrador wanted to have their own pole pretty much they could because the population is is so small compared to the amount of infrastructure that they have, but to your point it is a very difficult terrain to to access and that's why they have looked at using drones, because it is so hard to get up close to a lot of their infrastructure and be able to even use binoculars or get up close to inspect a lot of these poles. And so that's where drones have been a really great value proposition for uh, for that country and for or for that province, excuse me, and for their uh, their infrastructure there.
2: And another thing is is it's extreme. They have extreme snowstorms as well. So if their infrastructure is getting impacted with extremities. And that's, uh, you know, that tests our solution to the maximum as well. If we are able to deliver on extreme, you know, infrastructure damage and deliver the best results, I, I think that's a great win for other utilities as well.
1: Yeah, in Lower Mainland and Vancouver, Rylev has got the glorious weather. Newfoundland, well, it doesn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it is, by the way, the only province in Canada I haven't been to. So I didn't quite get there. So maybe one day. What other clients do you have, though? I mean, you know, the, the really interesting. You're up in Newfoundland, which is a you know much storied space, place. But um, what other clients do you have? you have talked about PG&E. Uh, are they one of your clients? or?
2: Oh, I was going to say, so uh, pg and we are not directly working with them. We are engaging in conversations with them to, you know, f- with some of their teams to help them with their uh, inspection processes so it's still you know we they're not direct or active customers for us but we are having conversations with them and in in terms of other utilities so we we are currently working with new york power authority uh, again the biggest state utility in the us they are we are working on a project with them we are having multiple conversations and running projects with other utilities as well which we would be able to name more once we you know become you know go in their vendor list but a few of them right now is Newfoundland Power, New York Power Authority. We have, uh, and then the engagement with the utilities I was talking about. We have one in in Texas, and then a couple of them are on the East Coast.
1: Uh, sounding like you got a lot of East Coast and Northern clients, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you guys are both
2: on the opposite side of the of the continent.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you've we're, had this
1: conversation.
0: You know, we're working with a variety of utilities across across North America. Several of them are on the East Coast, but really we're working and engaging with some of the most innovative utilities who are doing the most inspections, whether that's contracted inspections or in-house inspections. But a big piece of the way that we go to market, we do direct utility sales. So we work with those direct in-house utility teams that are the aviation teams, the transmission, distribution teams, the inspection teams, the you know, Several others were touching in vegetation management teams as well, and that's a part of our direct utility sales. But as I was mentioning earlier with Ultimax Technologies, we do a lot of work with the drone inspection companies too, who contract with those utilities. And we work with the, the drone and helicopter service providers in different, different parts of, of North America, and we're now even working beyond North America, to help them analyze and make sense of a lot of their inspection data that they're collecting too. In those circumstances, our results are still delivered to that end utility customer. But you know, we see that working with those data collection service providers is another great way for us to get in the doors of some of the major utility players, especially as an early stage startup. We find that there's you know creative ways that we found of going to market, which really helps us streamline our resources while also getting our solution in the doors of some of the major players in the space.
1: Yeah, So we're coming to, to the end of the time slot. I am respectful of your time. A couple of just questions about the, the company and the, and the clean tech entrepreneur process. So a, a how big is your company now?
0: So we're a team of 11 people? right now, but we're actively hiring. We're planning to be at closer to 15 or 16 people. We're specifically hiring for several engineering roles and are drastically looking to expand our team size there.
1: Yeah, I was kind of thinking it certainly it wasn't just you two guys, and you actually have revenue. Do you, you know are you able to share revenue numbers? Yeah, you know, as an
0: indicator of success. We we do have um, some pretty pretty strong revenue numbers. We're not able to share those publicly right now, but we are generating revenue with several different utilities.
1: Excellent. Excellent news. So and, and that leads into five years in, you've got a growing team, you're expanding, you've got an in, now international client base. And you've got strong revenue numbers. So this makes you guys so far the rarity, a successful clean tech startup. There aren't that many that actually make it. You guys probably met, you guys probably know a lot of people who have failed. So, you know, for both of you, maybe starting with Vic and then ending with Caitlin this time, what have you learned as a clean tech entrepreneur and what advice would you give to others?
2: Yes. Great question. So. You know, we started this journey as, as a clean tech entrepreneur in 2017, and both Caitlin and I have, you know, we are outside from the industry. We haven't worked with uh, inside a utility. So we had a lot of learnings in this sector that we experienced. We made a lot of mistakes and then we learned from them. We, we uh, you know, learned from our mentors, our advisors, and even our, our peers in this space. I would say this is one of the most challenging and most imp- impactful space, and this is where a lot of innovation is happening. It's an antiquated industry, but it's changing so fast because of the real world impact that is happening due to either climate change or electrification, EVs, you know, all those kind of use cases that are coming up. So one of, one of the things that we have learned or, or from, uh, you know, both of our standpoint is just be patient in this industry as an entrepreneur. If you want to enter, you have to have patience and persistence things move slow, but when they move, they, they create a major impact. So just, just keep on pushing and being persistent and patient.
1: What's your take, Caitlin?
0: Yeah, I think that I would follow up on Vic's point there. I mean, it's it's really great to be able to wake up every day and start work and be working on something that's so impactful and that's having a real significant positive impact in a space that's you know, a very core fundamental piece of our economy and is the, you know, is the background backbone of, of our infrastructure uh, electricity is. And and I think that it's really exciting to be a part of the clean tech movement as a whole and climate tech is a, is a really exciting wave to be a part of. And I definitely would echo that patience is really critical, but also continuously receiving feedback from the customer and the end user is, is so important. And I think that that's been uh, one of our valuable I guess you would say takeaways that we've had is as we've been continuing to grow and evolve as a business, we're constantly keeping the customer's feedback in mind and constantly trying to be on the cutting edge of what's what's to come with innovation and deployments of a technology and a solution like ours. So uh, being able to listen to Several different customers or several different major players in the space and and take that into consideration as we're continuing to refine, builds and improve our product, I think has been what served us well in this space and has really helped us beyond the the cutting edge of innovation. So we're really looking forward to continuing that as we grow. And I would definitely say that that's a, a strong piece of advice I would give to anyone looking to enter even the, the clean tech space or climate tech space or beyond.
1: Yeah, and the last thing then, thank you guys for, for that. This is a, a bit of an overlap. But you have an audience: fifty percent inside the United States, fifty percent internationally. You guys are successfully driving forward with uh, adaptation to climate change, you know, and you know, just anybody, you know, what things, what one or two things would you say to an audience uh, about your experiences or or your life or or your perspective that you think would add value to them? You know, Caitlin, uh, why don't you start with this one?
0: yeah I think that being passionate about the work that you're doing is is so important, especially when you're when you have to be very patient about the work that you're doing in the space, but I think continuing to have that passion and and continually reminding yourself of why you're doing this has been has been so important It's been really important for me and in my career and I'm looking forward to continuing that going forward. but um, I always try and just maintain the focus on the long term and the long term goals that we're hoping to achieve and just you
1: know, I, I think passion has been something that's
2: really carried me forward with that. But you, Vic? Yeah, so I would say, uh, again, the clean tech community or, or the climate tech community is is pretty small. It's growing a lot, which is which is great. And that's what we want. We want more people to be invested in this vision. And I'm very biased towards clean energy because that's what I decided to dedicate my career and life towards. We really need green resources, green energy resources, clean energy resources to You know, uh, do uh, to provide decarbonization, we are seeing a lot of problems. Just recently, a couple of days ago, uh, UN's report came out about the the grave consequences that we'll face if we don't, you know, wean away from uh, carbonized resources. So that's very important. Is people being invested in this area? And I'm going to say that not on a general perspective, but telling people to. Uh, you know, get invested in this area of climate, uh, climate tech, clean tech. Find problems that need solving, and there are a lot of problems that need solving in this area. And you will have a community that you can lean on, that you can get, you know, mentorship or advice from. Apply technologies, uh, cutting-edge technologies that are evolving in, you know, the, the uh, technological area. Apply those to this specific space because. This really needs, you know, a lot of participation, but a lot of technology infusion into it for us to drive towards, you know, the best results that we can uh, we can achieve as, as part of decarbonization, electrification uh, goals that we have. So my perspective: get invested in climate tech, get invested in renewables, clean tech, and you know, let's save the planet.
1: Excellent. I've been speaking with the two co-founders of Buzz Solutions, Caitlin Abertoli and Vic Chaudhry. They analyze terabytes of high-resolution images of power lines and towers captured by drones and helicopters for their clients, rapidly identifying failed or failing components, making linesmen much more productive, and giving utilities' workforces better job satisfaction. It's a win-win. Kaelin, Vic, thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. Thank you
0: for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. You are here.